can you say a little more about micro generation in terms of your oh, yeah. local your local setting because i know there are some things afoot in your local area that that would give pause for consideration for others yeah well for us here we, we're in a very high rainfall area it's a mountainous region in the north of wales so we have a lot of rain we're on the atlantic coast the irish sea so basically we get atlantic weather coming up from the southwest and there's a lot of rain so we live in a place that has a great deal of water and we also live in a place that's mountainous so we've got water running down steep slopes in in, prof, in profuse amounts you know mm. uh, so it's obvious that hydroelectric generation is is a, a really powerful resource for us you know we've got a great deal of water and we've got a great deal of steep slopes so in the village that I live in right now, there's been one hydroelectric scheme that's been really successful. It's generated loads of money, actually, and it's a social it's a social project, so the profits are being reinvested. Uh, one of the things the profits have bought is they bought an electric car for the village, right? Which is a you know it's a nice touch, but I think what's profound about that is that it's a communal transport. sitting in my car by myself driving to work you know something we've something we something we've spoken about a lot and um, as okay, we begin nice. um it's something that I'm, I'm really grateful this morning i'm joined by uh, martin dawes a former uh, poet laureate for the young people of wales um longtime friend of mine um spoken word uh, genius um, known around the world, been as, been to places as far flung as Israel and uh, the west coast of the USA. Um, he is um, in Wales over Skype right now. We're all under the COVID-19 lockdown. And this is the first podcast, which is entitled Breathing Below the Waves. Um, because this is an attempt to get beyond the surface, beyond the basics of things and also allow us some space to begin to think about our spiritual needs, our faith, and what it is that really makes us tick underneath. I'm going to begin with a quote from a tradition that is not mine, but one I've been introduced to. The quote comes from, from Rabindranath Tagore. Don't limit a child to your learning, for she was born in another time. One to ponder. So. This morning, um, we are blessed to be able to speak about lots of things to do with politics, to do with the small p politics and the big p politics. We are just sat here as two ordinary fellows having a conversation. But first of all, good morning, Martin. Good morning, Egan Femi. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of your podcast. I'm honoured, deeply honoured. No, the, the, the pleasure and the honours is all mine. And I feel as if this is the beginning of something and uh, we hope to have you on speaking many, many times into the future. So, we talked previously in our chats about how the landscape has changed politically over the last number of years. And we have particularly spoken about the way in which working people, the way in which uh, people who are not as well off as, as, as some have voted oftentimes in ways which we may struggle to understand. Um, there is also a feature returning into politics around the world, um, which is looking as if those who are quote unquote in the ruling class, 
those who are quote-unquote seen as being the successful ones end up being the leaders. Witness the current President of the United States, Trump, and the current Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Johnson. What's your take initially on that, Martin? Well, I think we live in a very materialist society, so if people prove their, their worth through material status, then mm. I can see how that brings political status as well. Not that I really buy into that personally, because I think they're, they're both recipients of huge privilege in terms of coming into wealthy families and maintaining that privilege of a big platform. I think as well, I think that the, the, the expansion of the global market that we've seen through our lifetime in terms of the communications and in, in terms of uh, the, the change around of, of the power base of China, you know, the power base of the new economies like mm, India, Brazil. That's really important. Yeah, that this is a major challenge to the established industrial hierarchy in Europe and in America. So it makes me think, you know, when I see the, the movements that are happening politically from people who are involved in finance, you know, whether it's property development or whether it's involved in maintaining large-scale wealth that they're a part of, I wonder about the people in Europe, you know, say in Britain, they're looking at, say, Saudi Arabia, and they're looking at China and they're thinking, well, how on earth can we compete in a global market with these nations that don't have the same uh, kind of liberal protection of their workers' rights? You know, how, how can we, how, I mean, they, they must be thinking it's not fair. You know, the, these countries don't have to pay people a proper wage. These people don't have mm. to pay holiday pay. They don't have to look after their workers the way we have to. How can we compete as capitalists against them? And that, that's, I think, that's the motivation behind a lot of what we see in terms of right-wing politics. They're trying to push a free market and they're trying to uh, re repeal uh, many of the advances that were made in labour rights and labour laws. I mean, you, you know where I live here in North Wales. I live right next to a, a big slate quarry that in the, the early, the first few years of the 20th century, there was a three-year strike here. And this was a pioneering strike and they were early unionists. Mm. And they were brave. they were brave. They were brave people. They went out. They had no support. People starved in this village. They yes. went on strike for three years, mm. and they fought for those workers' rights because they were being terribly exploited. And those rights are being repealed now. You know, mm. we've got we've got zero hour contracts, and yeah. and we we got a minimum wage and zero hour contracts. What use is that? <laughs> you can have a minimum wage as much as you want if you're not getting employed. Indeed. It doesn't make any difference. I'm, I'm called to remember a line from one of my favorite TV shows, The West Wing, which talked about um, oftentimes this issue of China and the global market. And there was a line in there which stuck with me, which is that, to, you know, Chinese dissidents are going to be showing soccer balls with their teeth. So we, we should sell them uh, cheeseburgers, you know, and, and Coca-Cola because that's what they'll be doing anyway. And we hope that the forces of um, democratization, the forces of liberalism will be empowered by trade and empowered by influence from the West. So far, it's not really happened. Um, and I do believe that it was a sop enough in, in many terms to continue with an expansionist globalist capital capitalism at the um, at the expense of ordinary people. 
Um, because yeah. it's only in the last year or two that this, the situation with, with the Uyghurs in, in China has started to become much more prominent. Um, these are the, the Chinese um, uh, grouping or, or, or population who are different. Let's just say that just let's just say that they've come from a different tradition than most and are thought to be because there isn't often that much information to be held in re-education camps to be held um, against their will often um, basically because they're different but yet China continues to thrive from an economic um, space and continues to trade with the West and buy Western products whether they be you know, 747s or whether they be Range Rovers. Um, so it doesn't really matter so much to the world whether the Uyghurs are um, being persecuted and whether they are a group of people who should be um, on the agenda every time anything is being done with China. And if you recall, we're going back a couple of years, this is a very similar space to the Rohingyas um, in Myanmar, where it wasn't really an issue up until it started to become clear on our TV screens that there was actual violence being perpetrated towards this pe this group of people in a far part of the world, which probably has more than a little bit of st strategic importance to people in the West. Please. Well, I think it, it's difficult for me to judge, you know, other other cultures and other nations about what's going on, but. Because, you know, obviously I'm not looking to try and push a colonialist agenda that, that me, Mr. European... How, but let me, let, me, let me push you on that. But however, yeah. do you not believe that countries around the world, if I go back to one of my favourite causes from when I was a kid, um, the, the anti-apartheid movement, do you not believe that other countries around the world have to call out discrimination and... Uh, repression of minorities. Do you not believe that I, that's true? I do, I do, and I think if the the boycotts that happened in South Africa, the sporting boycotts, I think they were all valid and they were they were of great uh, of great value. And I have to say, I mean, you mentioned I've been to Israel previously. I went to Israel in transit to Palestine, and there's that's a situation that I think is analogous to uh, to South Africa in the apartheid regime. And there's 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 movements towards boycotting Israel and to putting pressure on Israel, but we're not seeing the same level of uh, of will, of international will. And I think that's partly to do with Israel's status compared to, to South Africa's status as it was. But I think it's also to do with a change a change in time and a change in ethics. And the 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 global the global market, that's where I, I think money trumps everything in a way. In that, if we're going to judge, say, you know, workers' rights and political rights in China, mm. well, we're judging them within the context of the global market as well, which which is a kind of leveling. When you uh, say leveling, I'm what, no what, what? I'm no free trade capitalist, sure, but it's a kind of leveling there, and I think it's really important that you know, for free trade is based on on uh, uh, competition, but how can you compete when you have these different ethics and you have different social structures? You just there isn't a competition. When you say that, that's truly critical and it can only lead to a great deal of conflict. When you say leveling, what are you what are you speaking of? Because there's been a lot of speaking there's been a lot of talk in the UK since the general election in December of twenty nineteen, which um, Boris Johnson and the Conservatives won handily. Um, 
about leveling up. Is that the sort of leveling you're referring to around the world? The fact that um, children in um, the poorest parts of the world deserve the opportunity to be able to live um, in dignity with um, all of the basic human needs being met as opposed to not having running water, uh, not having access to good, um, good quality education or having shelter and the like. That's absolutely what I mean. And I think it'd be very hard for any public figure to argue against that. Right. right? But what, what, how's that going to be paid for? And the, the big question for me is, does it mean we're going to bring standards of living down? Right. Like so it's a leveling down. Societies? Because when we look at the quality of life, like we're getting overloaded with stuff that we don't need. So, so well, hang on, for, no, we, uh, hang on. When you say overloaded, I think I know where you're going. But yeah. when you refer to overloaded, are you talking about people's inability to step back and not have to uh, engage in this race towards materialist nirvana? I think it's very hard for us to step back. I mean, I, I think a clear example would just be the amount of food that gets thrown away in this country. You know, that, that's a really clear example, isn't it? If you're talking about there's children who aren't getting enough to eat, and then you're talking about skips at the back of supermarkets in our country that are full of food that's being thrown away. You know, that, that's just how, that's the kind of levelling. I think we'd all like to see, and, and people who, you know, I think we can, the majority of human beings in the, in the countries who are having those issues with over-resourcing, uh, I think the majority of those people would admit that they feel that that's wrong and they're not comfortable with it. And what the real question now is, what are we going to do about it? And how are we going to motivate ourselves to actually do something about it? And that's where I think the COVID-19 crisis is, is really critical because all of a sudden something's happened where there's political will for change. All of a sudden it's happened where... You know, we, what are we prepared to lock our society down for? Well, we're not prepared to lock it down in, in protest of virtually anything. You right. know, like, are we prepared to lock it down for because of child trafficking? No. Are we prepared right. to stop our society for the basis of, of climate change? No. We're mm. not prepared to do any of that. But we will stop it for COVID-19. So I don't quite know why that is. Mm. You know? Because it, because it threatens... It's amazing that we've shown that we do have the... We do have the capacity to do it. Yeah. What about and, what? Ab- and, you know, see where we go from here. What about the small p politics of this? I spoke to an elder of mine in the Orisha community um, in New Jersey in the USA yesterday, and he asked me whether I had some seeds because he's looking to grow a lot more of his own food. How are we going to transform in this moment the way in which we consume and the way in which we provide provide for ourselves so that a lot more of what we consume can be correct for us in terms of being in our own localities, being being made or being grown by people who we can see and t- touch and feel, and crucially has a, a low impact or as little impact as possible on the environment? Well, I, I don't know how you're going to get people living in large cities to be growing their own foods, man. You know, we've been we've been in situations like this before in the Second World War. There were a few tr- food shortages in Britain, and they, the government took control of that. And there was rationing, and people people were growing their own food. There was yep. a big slogan: "Dig, dig in for victory." There you go. And in the US, I think it was, was like, "Grow, grow your own food." Now, in I the US, they had victory she was gardens. A small child in the Second World War, she was living mm. in the country in a small village, and they had a pig in the back garden, 
that they kept. Wow. And then, and her job as a small girl was to go around the village with a bucket mm. and they'd collect all the potato peelings and things like that and they'd feed that to the pigs. But then when they slaughtered the pig, everyone had been putting the food in for the pig to get some of the meat. And then, and every family was allowed to keep one pig maximum. But my grandfather, him and his mate, had another pig that they kept in the woods. Like they made a, a sty like out in the woods and kept that away from the authorities. And they had another one on the go as well. So they had, they had double meat. But that, that really, to me, is the solution. That for where I live, fortunately for me, I live in a rural area where we have access to land. And I actually have two opportunities that I can take up directly to go and dig in and work communally on local a local food growing project and and sharing that food. So I'm fortunate because I have access to land to do that. Now, for people living in the city, I don't know how that's going to work. So you've got, you know, large scale agriculture, but I think small scale agriculture is the way and that that really in terms of creating the necessities of life. You know, however we want to generate our energy, however we mm. want to generate our food. Yeah. That my, I think micro-generation is really key and I think most people involved thinking seriously about environmentalism have been of this opinion for decades. Can you, can you, but, can you say a little more about micro-generation in terms of your, yeah. local, your local setting? Because I know there are some things afoot in your local area that, that would give pause for consideration for others. Yeah, well for us here, we, we're in a very high rainfall area. It's a mountainous region in the north of Wales. So we have a lot of rain. We're on the Atlantic coast, the Irish Sea. So basically we get Atlantic weather coming up from the southwest and there's a lot of rain. So we live in a place that has a great deal of water. And we also live in a place that's mountainous. So we've got water running down steep slopes in in, prof, in profuse amounts, you know. Mm. Uh, so it's obvious that hydroelectric generation is, is a, a really powerful resource for us. You know, we've got a great deal of water and we've got a great deal of steep slopes. So, in the village that I live in right now, there's been one hydroelectric scheme that's been really successful. It's generated loads of money, actually, and it's a social it's a social project, so the profits are being reinvested. Uh, one of the things the profits have brought is they bought an electric car for the village. Right. Which is, a, you know, it's a nice touch, but I think what's profound about that is that it's a communal transport. Right. It's, we're no longer Shared. being encouraged to just live in our one box, we're encouraged to share a box together. Now that's profound. And there's another scheme, and this is this is exciting. I've had a little hand in supporting this because it's 50 meters from my house, but there's another hydro scheme being built right now that I've had a small hand in supporting. So we're looking at generating our own electricity. And I think that if you if we look at there's been large scale investment in wind farms around the UK. Yes. So we've got some of the largest ones in Europe off the coast just here. I can just go mm. 10 miles up the road and there's like huge cities they're like lit up at night a mile two three miles off the coast of wind farms but when you're generating electricity like that and then you're sending it around a national grid it's hugely inefficient you're generating loads of electricity but even sending it down a cable for a long distance you lose lots of the electricity so micro generation is far more powerful because you don't have to generate as much and you're in control of your own needs but of course that moves against the larger the larger capital system you know of like bigger is better you can get more control if one person to you know empire building we still have a very i think empirical and and sort of feudal view of of how we structure our society and that you know that's why i think you still see people who are working from going back to your original question people who are kind of in the ceo office in a large company right. you know, they're like the king of the castle aren't they mm. and we still seem to be relying on those people for our political will but 
if there's one thing that I think we can probably most of us agree on it, you know, good stuff ain't going to come from the top. Indeed. <laughs> it's got to come from the people upwards. And micro-generation is an enactment of that. So right. generating what we need. Can, can we just uh, bring things around to what I began with, which was a quote about a child's learning, and reflect on this amazing moment for children and young people's activism, and look at what is happening right now with COVID, how it's affecting the environment, and how spiritually um, this is making everybody feel, because um, it's made a moment, certainly on this side of the water in the United States, in North Carolina, where I am based, where the um, broadcast television stations such as the NBCs and the CBSs have been featuring um, various um, faith leaders and spiritual gurus who've been leading meditations on morning television. Now, I'm not sure that t even 10 years ago that that would have been something that would have been contemplated on mainstream TV. But mindfulness meditation is very much in the air right now. Um, I saw a piece by a CEO um, in INC or Inc. magazine talking about the importance of mindfulness for his employees. <laughs> so things have changed and shifted a bit. But I do think we do owe, owe our children and young people a debt of, debt of gratitude, and particularly those who've um, been activists around climate change. Your thoughts? Yes, I thought your quote was really powerful. It was succinct and it was very beautiful. They are born in another time. Yeah, and we have to learn. We have to learn from children. Now, it's our job to protect them, but ideally, I think our children should be an evolution on us. You know, in Agreed. every way, we should see them as, as we should hope that they would be better people than we are yes. and I think that's our job you know it's to, to enable young people to flourish and for them to progress and I think ev the evolution of consciousness is happening really rapidly in this next generation they've they've had a whole uh, different level of environmental awareness if, if you were talking about young people under 20 they've there's been the environmental movement has been really powerful in school curriculums mm -hmm. through the whole period of time I mean we're still seeing kind of token efforts Oh, it's, it'll be okay if we just recycle, you know. Or we'll do a recycling project. Oh, we'll get we'll get all the plastic and turn it into a sculpture, you know. But it, but it's a consciousness behind that that we didn't have, you know, when like when I was at school 30, 40 years ago. So there is a different environmental consciousness. There's also a far sharper necessity for change for this generation because in terms of climate crisis, many of the young people they, they don't see themselves having the opportunity to live in that old age. They just right. don't see the world as being able to support them. I mean, that, I, I grew up feeling under threat of nuclear attack mm. because that was a big, big part of the news agenda at the time. There was the Cold War. I was living in the London area and I, I grew up, you know, literally paranoid. I'd, I'd hear loud noises at night and think it was a nuclear warning as a kid. You know, I was, I was scared uh, and I was paranoid about it. But that most of us were. All of my, all of my, my, we talked about it at school. We were like 12 year olds and we were all saying what we were going to do when we heard the warning. What are you going to do in the last four minutes of life? You know, that's and, and our, our childhood imaginations. That was be, correct, right? The four-minute warning, as it yeah, was. Yeah. Yes, yes. And the the local yeah. um, the local um, council sent out a leaflet. I remember when I must have been about ten or eleven years old with. Um, with you know what to do in the event of a, a nuclear, I mean, it just it's almost yeah. mind-boggling that that actually happened yeah, and it existed yeah, within yeah, living memory. Like, and I think the advice was get under the kitchen table yeah. or go in the cupboard under the stairs, like duck and cover, you know, as I've heard it called. You know, and, you know, and, and 
ultimately the best thing probably would have been to say, well, grab the ones you love, tell them you love them, and say a prayer for your spirits. Yeah. You know, yeah. You're off. Yeah. But, you know, that, so how wide scale was that? What was going on there in terms of fear-mongering among us? But I, I didn't expect, I didn't think that the world was not going to be able to support me. I thought, like, human war could kill me, and there was a mm. lot of evidence that human war does kill people. Uh, and, and, you know, repeatedly over time. But I didn't think that the planet wasn't going to be able to support all of us. Right. You know, and that, that's a different context. So these young mm. people now, they're growing up, they're in a different time and they're growing up in a different way and they're going to have to, they're going to have to make a difference. Mm. Yeah, that, that nuclear war didn't happen. Yeah, I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but it didn't happen to us. We didn't die as kids in the yes. nuclear holocaust. Yes. But these, these young people, I mean, they really are staring down the barrel. Mm. Or for their children, for you know, my grandchildren. What sort of world are my grandchildren going to come into yeah. if they come into it? You know, what are the people are talking about they're going to be living in like a, a you know, a plastic tunnel. Indeed, with and oxygen being pumped into it, they won't be able to go outside. And can you, so, can you, know, you, what sort of life is that, man? Can you speak about and yeah, with great passion there, and quite rightly too. Um, I, I loved your point about your grandkids. I think that's that. I think uh, many of us need to give pause for what's going to happen, not just in this century, but the century that follows. I just want to check in with you finally about spirituality and religion and faith and the role that that plays or doesn't in this moment, um, and how, also how it's how it's affecting you personally. How you're how you're seeing the world? Is it make is it making you more anxious? Is it making you more faithful? What is it What is it doing for you in your day to day? Well, personally, I'm I'm finding courage to face to face the challenges of, of where we are with COVID nineteen. I mean, I've, I've had some fear for my own mortality. You know, I thought, well, this is something coming around that's killing people. I see people my age. I'm fifty. I see people my age dying. I'm like, oh, could this get me? But I haven't. Uh, that fear hasn't broken me as such. I still I have some strength, and the, the, the strength I put in is a spiritual strength, certainly, to face that. Uh, I mean, I've had some some anxieties over previous years around my mortality so a kind of you know uh, uh, kind of psychology midlife crisis as such I'm getting older I'm becoming an elder fears around uh, like histories of heart disease in my family like uh, you know my father's demise my grandfather's death they didn't they didn't live that much longer than I am now right and uh, so I face some of those fears and I really think life is for the living and I'm not too scared of dying now, I mean, you sure. said something to me very profound that really stuck with me. It was that mortality is beautiful. And I reflected on that. You're the only person who's ever said that to me. And I reflected on that. That 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 gives the, the beauty of life, doesn't it? You know, mortality is what really focuses the beauty of life. And I I give thanks every day. My, my morning prayer is thank you for this day. Thank you for this life. And uh, my, my articulation of, of God and of goddess is within nature. It's the grace of nature that is all. And I'm truly grateful for this moment and for this life, and and uh, and I face I face the challenges that we that we face with with that to give me strength. And I think that is really important to find a way of sharing that with the young people, because it's a it's a greater context. Like a, for me, spirituality is a connection to something beyond the immediate and the material. It's yeah. both the immediate and the material, but it's that which is beyond it. So the material stress and the material breakdown of our society as it occurs is transcended by, by something within it and it gives a context yep. to put our, our worries and our troubles into into a wider context that's bigger than that and uh, I think there is a piece in that and I, I think it's really important to share that with young people as well because you know there, there's that that can give them a context to understand 
what their generation is going through. I mean, we're talking about young people who are adolescents, so they're coming into adulthood. Well, it feels to a degree like our our society is in a period of transition as well. And, no. uh, and I hope that it can grow into a greater maturity, you know, where where we're not going to see as much exploitation and we're not going to see the, the, the humanity destroying itself, you know, repeatedly, again and again and again. There has to be a better way. There has to be a better way. And it, it seems to me that we've proven ourselves to be incapable of creating that better way. Certainly in my own experience of life and what's around me. But it feels like I talk about that the grace of nature that is all. It feels like at the moment nature is taking a very powerful hand in that. And giving us an opportunity to reset. Um, I want to say a huge thank you to Martin um, for spending this moment with me. And uh, this is breathing. Um, this is beneath the waves. This is a moment for us to consider ourselves, our spirituality, and also how that intersects with our day-to-day -day lives. What's going on in your community? What's happening? Martin shared some amazing insights and we look forward to speaking with him again soon. And we thank you for listening.